Welcome to Focus Season 2. We focus on folklore. I'm your host, Jolene B. Every month, we have a new episode delving into a family's history through the lens of ethnography and foreign policy. Check out at Focus Podcast for more information. This week, we will be talking about a family from Fiji and India and the United States. We will refer to the person who submitted this comprehensive story as Anais. Remember that family stories are told from the perspective of the family. There is always bias involved with the actual story. Keep in mind, there is no intended hate against any nationality, ethnicity, or group. Let's get started. Anais is one quarter African-American, one quarter European, and half Indo-Fijian. I'll start off with her African-American side. Anais's mother is half black and half white. On her black paternal side, her great-grandfather, who is Anais's great-great-grandfather, was born illegitimately in the late 1800s in Mississippi. Although he was born free, it can reasonably be assumed that his recent ancestors were enslaved. He later moved north to St. Louis during the Great Migration, got married, and had children. One of these children is Betty, who is Anais's great-grandmother. Betty later moved to San Francisco. There, she met her future husband, a mechanic originally from Tennessee. They got married and had a son named Robert in the 1930s. Betty's husband would not have a good relationship with the rest of their family, and to this day, much of Anais's family won't talk about that side. In the late 1950s, Robert was in prison. The reason why is unclear, but he met the husband of the future mother of his child, that child being Anais's mother. At that point, the jail was racially integrated as that husband was white and Robert was African-American. They became friends of a sort, and Robert later met his wife. Her name is Doris, and she was a wealthy heiress with her family in the train industry. Four generations back, Doris's family was in Norway, and two generations later, her family was in Scotland. Doris's great-grandfather, who is Anais's great-great-great-grandfather, left Scotland on a boat in the 1850s, and their family settled in and owned large portions of land in Wyoming in the early 1900s. In two short generations, the family had amassed enough wealth for Doris to live comfortably. Her family was racist, and the, quote, big shameful secret of her family, as described by Anais, is that Doris's great-grandfather may have married a woman of the Jewish faith, since her last name was Klein. That gives an idea of what Doris's family's social views were like. When Doris and Robert met in the late 1950s, Doris was in her first marriage to the man that Robert had befriended in jail. They fell in love, but they could not get married since the Supreme Court decision of Loving v. Virginia would not happen until 1967, years later. Doris eventually got pregnant and gave birth to Margaret in 1961. Margaret is Anais's mother. Since interracial marriage was not allowed at the time, Doris's first husband, the one who was white, had to claim Margaret as his child. Doris's family completely disowned her after she gave birth to a mixed-race baby. During our interview, Anais mentioned how wild it is to see the manner in which racism progresses. As a last disrespect to Doris, her wealthy family left her out of the will and left all of their money to her sibling. That sibling ended up running away to Hawaii in the 1970s, and Doris lived on residuals for the rest of her life. 
Margaret has very few memories with her white grandmother, Doris's mother. One of the only ones was that she could only sit on a rug and she was not given toys, so she had to play with oranges instead. When Margaret was young, Doris got left for another woman. Apparently, Robert had been dating one woman in one apartment and another woman in another apartment in the same complex. Similar to how he met Doris, he also befriended her husband while he was in jail. That husband was of the Native American community, and he was then married to Robert's new love, who worked as a real estate agent. They shared four mixed-race children. Robert decided to marry his new love and leave Doris, and with their combined incomes, he, his new wife, the new wife's children, and their children together were able to live in a white, dominated suburb. As a result, Doris and Margaret almost always refused to have any contact with Robert's family. This put Margaret in a difficult situation as Margaret knew almost none of her black family and she was not allowed around her white family. Thus, when she was growing up, it was mostly just her and Doris. Later, Margaret became a hairdresser. At work, she befriended an airline attendant who was from Fiji. That's how she ended up in Fiji and met two men who she would have one child each with. Interestingly enough, the fathers of her children were even from the same village and were probably related. The first time around, she met the first man and gave birth to Anais's older brother. Things did not work out. A couple years later, she went back to the same village and her airline attendant friend introduced her to her brother-in-law. According to Anais, the first time she saw him running in a soccer field, she knew he was the one. This man is Anais's father, and his name is Davith. Davith's great-grandparents, who are Anais's great-great-grandparents, were indentured servants brought to Fiji by the British sometime around the 1870s from northeastern India. In much of Indian culture, according to Anais, there is a big stigma against the historical diaspora communities. Ironically, the Indian diaspora is the largest in the world at 17.5 million people living outside of their ancestors' place of origin. Anais says that the embarrassment of being indentured servants at one point has led her family to hide their past. Her family are known as Indo-Fijians, and most Indo-Fijians can trace their ancestors back to Nepal, Bihar, and Uttar Pradesh. Fiji was colonized by Britain in 1874, so it was considered a late colony. The British bought Indians there because they supposedly were accustomed to working with sugarcane and were used to working in a harsh climate. It's hard to know what made Anais's ancestors take the offer, but likely the poverty and the threat of famine present in the British Raj. The colonial authorities wanted to set up the sugarcane industry, and since Britain no longer practiced slavery as it was abolished in 1807 and was unwilling to exploit indigenous labor, they decided to import labor by implementing the indentured labor scheme. Most Indian laborers, over 1 million in total, that were sent to British colonies were illiterate, impoverished, and usually desperate for work. Most of them were lied to and told they were going to work lucrative agriculture jobs in different parts of India. Instead, they were shipped around the world, first to the Caribbean and South Africa, to replace African enslaved people. 
most Indians were shipped to Mauritius, British Guyana, Natal, Trinidad, Fiji, Jamaica, Suriname, and Renam. Over 60,000 indentured servants of various regions, villages, backgrounds, and castes, but mostly from rural villages, would be sent to Fiji. The contracts of indentured laborers were called Gurmit. These contracts required them to work in Fiji for a period of five years. Living conditions on the sugarcane plantations had very poor standards, which resembled that of slavery. After the contracted five years of work as an indentured laborer or as a non-contracted free laborer, they were given the choice of returning to India at their own expense or remaining in Fiji. 80% of the indentured servants had to stay because they could not afford to return under the low pay of the British government. Even in many instances, they were denied wages or were refused to be sent back. After the expiration of their contracts, many leased small plots of land from indigenous Fijians and developed their own sugarcane fields or cattle farmlets. Others went into business in the towns that were beginning to develop. There were two major social impacts of the system. First, the need for people of different castes to live, work, and eat together led to the blurring of the caste system. The indentured servants of Fiji cut across 265 castes and subcastes, but almost all were connected with agriculture. The higher castes served as proprietors and subproprietors, the middle castes worked as privileged tenants, and the lowest castes were employed as tenants at will, landless laborers and artisans. The lower castes typically suffered the brunt of evictions and increases in taxes and rent, while the higher castes paid lower rent and were often able to resist outside interventions by banding together. Indian females only made up about half of the male population size, which resulted in people marrying outside of the caste. While the caste did not completely disappear, time and situations did blur the distinct classes. Another impact was the development of a new language known as Fiji Hindi that was formed from different languages and dialects of India. Public outrage in the UK over labor abuses ended all government-run indenture in 1920. However, from the early 1900s, Indians had started arriving in Fiji as free agents. Ethnic tensions arose, and this was reflected in the Fijian government. Indians demanded more representation, but European settlers and Fijian chiefs feared political domination by Indians, whose numbers were rapidly rising. The fear of Indo-Fijian domination also led to the abolition of the elected membership of Suva Municipal Council in 1934, with the council becoming a wholly appointed body. By the 1950s, ethnic Indians outnumbered indigenous Fijians, this was due to the death of a third of the indigenous populations, mainly males and children, that died from smallpox contracted when King Kakabao and other chief leaders returned from a trip to Australia in the 1800s, during which they caught smallpox. Ethnic tensions led to slogans like, quote, one country, one people, one destiny, end quote, and Europeans trying to unsuccessfully repatriate people of Indian backgrounds to India. Differences between ethnic Fijians and Indians complicated preparations for Fiji independence, which the United Kingdom granted in 1970, and have continued to define Fijian politics since. 
Prior to independence, Indians sought a common electoral role based on the principle of one man, one vote. Ethnic Fijian leaders opposed this, believing that it would favor urban voters who were mostly Indian. They sought a communal franchise instead, with different ethnic groups voting on separate electoral rolls. At a specially convened conference in London in April 1970, a compromise was agreed upon under which parliamentary seats would be allocated by ethnicity, with ethnic Fijians and Indians represented equally. Now let's discuss Devi's family. Not too much is known about Davi's family between their arrival in Fiji in the 1800s and his father's generation, largely due to illiteracy. What is known is that the family, like most Indians in Fiji, were small-time farmers. David and his seven siblings sold vegetables, fruits, and other items. Their father's name is Aishik. He was a subsistence farmer born sometime in the late 1920s or early 1930s. Much of Anais's family doesn't talk about him. Aishik committed suicide when Anais's father was a teenager. Suicide is a very common phenomenon among the descendants of indentured people. On plantations, life expectancy was sometimes in the mid-20s. Alcoholism, depression, and suicide are very common, especially among men. I looked into the statistics, and I found a research article in the 2000 Asia-Pacific Journal of Public Health. This research article is linked in the resource document, by the way. According to the article, in 1971 and 1972, over 90% of the suicides committed in Fiji were by people of Indian descent. The suicide rate of Indians was 11.5 times higher than that of ethnic Fijians. Factors include religious and cultural beliefs, higher suicide risk in rural areas, and readily available use of toxic biocides as a method of death. This pattern is still prevalent today, especially among young people. Aside from the way that he passed away, Aishik had gotten married and had eight children, including David. Once David became an adult in the early 1980s, the family migrated to the neighborhoods around the capital's airport. David's sister-in-law worked for an airline, and she introduced him to her friend Margaret. They got married, and he moved with her to San Francisco. David was the second or third person in his family to immigrate to the U.S. Margaret eventually wanted a divorce, though. However, since that's a whole legal process with a waiting period, Margaret decided to keep David and have a child, Anais. Together, they lived in a small apartment in San Francisco and bought an extra house in a less expensive area for family to live in when they came to the U.S. One of Anais's cousins came to live with them and he became a priest, so their last name changed to something specific to relatives of priests. He was Anais's primary caregiver for much of her early life, and Anais described him as the most important pillar of the family and someone who everyone loves and respects. Anais grew up with her many Fijian cousins, and many of their family photos from the 80s and 90s are of people of many different colors, dressed in bright colors, and with their hair all sprayed out as according to the time period. When Anais graduated high school, David and Margaret got divorced, so she had to pay for college all by herself. 
she ended up going to Arizona, where tuition was cheaper, but her parents arguing over the FAFSA paperwork got her kicked out of school, unfortunately. Anais later went to school in Washington, which is around the time she met her future husband, Lindsay. She later graduated with a degree in accounting, and she is the first in her family to complete college. She also married Lindsay, and they had children. Now, there is much to discuss in regards to Fiji. I had mentioned major ethnic tensions, especially in politics following their independence in 1970. In 1987, an Indian-dominated coalition won elections, and some ethnic Fijians were extremely unhappy about this. About a month later, a lieutenant colonel seized power in a bloodless coup with the aim of making indigenous Fijians politically dominant. He later staged a second coup to make Fiji a republic and appoint indigenous Fijians in government positions. In the next years, thousands of people of Indian descent fled Fiji, including Anais' family, and a new constitution enshrining political dominance for indigenous Fijians was introduced, which resulted in the country getting kicked out of the Commonwealth. However, once a new, non-discriminatory constitution was passed, Fiji was readmitted into the Commonwealth and an ethnically Indian prime minister won elections. In 2000, a bankrupt businessman and retired major stormed parliament aiming to make indigenous Fijians the dominant political force. They even took the prime minister and his cabinet hostage, and one of them proclaimed himself acting premier. The prime minister and his cabinet were eventually released from being hostages about two months later, but the council of chiefs appointed the former father-in-law of the bankrupt businessman's brother as president. The insurgents were arrested the same year, and there was a failed army immunity. Elections in 2001 restored democracy, but they made the bankrupt businessman an MP. Then, the bankrupt businessman was sentenced to death for treason. But then, the president, who was an ethnic Fijian who refused to include Indians in his cabinet, commuted his sentence to life in prison instead of death. In 2004, the vice president was found guilty for treason in the 2000 coup, and a couple of years later, an MP was found guilty for helping orchestrate the failed military mutiny. In 2006, a military chief threatened to oust the government after it tried to replace him. That military chief did actually follow through with that threat and took power in a coup. He kept delaying elections and again and again and imposed a state of emergency, but in 2009, the appeal court ruled that the military regime was illegally appointed after the 2006 coup and said that a caretaker prime minister should be appointed to call elections to restore democracy. But then the president of Fiji repealed the constitution, declared himself official head of state, and reappointed that military chief. Of course, the Commonwealth retaliated and officially suspended Fiji. The government began to stabilize, and a new constitution was finally introduced in 2013, and elections were called. Outside of that, it is also important to note that climate change will greatly impact Fiji, as the country is expected to be fully underwater by 2100, creating hundreds of thousands of climate refugees. Now, about Indo-Fijians. 
Following the military coup of 1987, many Indians saw little future in staying in Fiji and tried to find any means to leave the country. Professionals, middle-class people, and business people found it easier to emigrate. It has been estimated that more than 100,000 Fiji Indians have emigrated since 1987, which represents a third of the existing Indian population in Fiji. According to some experts, this has created the phenomenon of brain drain due to education disparities between ethnic Indians and ethnic Fijians, and how Indians have shifted from making up the majority of the population to being around 30%. And that's where we're at today. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Anais and her family, especially her cousin, our editors, and our social media team. Music is by Meher Sethi. Our sources are listed on our resources page. Make sure to follow us on Instagram to receive updates and suggest potential episodes. See you next month. All names have been changed to respect privacy. All contributors to Focus shared willingly. We encourage all listeners to do independent research on any historical events mentioned.